1: Revelation, chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery just as i have received authority from my father i will also give that one the morning star whoever has ears let them hear what the spirit says to the
0: churches all right well again if it's your first time with us today welcome <laughs> it shows a great day to come back uh let's pray father uh, we do thank you for your word that we know is active and living uh, even hard words like this, we know, are birthed out of love for your church. So help us to receive it as such. I pray that you would give us soft hearts, open ears, um, to um, kind of get whatever we need to get out of this message in a way that transforms us from the inside out for our good and your glory. It's in Christ's name that we pray and as he sings, amen. You may be seated. Well, in my opinion, uh, the greatest movie franchise of all time is not Lord of the Rings. Sorry, Robert. i uh, just letting you know. It's not Harry Potter. Um, sorry, Chris. Let's see who else I can offend before we actually really get offensive today. Um, it's not Mission Impossible. It's not Spider-Man. It's not the Avengers. It's not Star Wars. It's not, it's not Indiana Jones. It's not James Bond. It's not even the Terminator. But in my humble opinion, the greatest movie franchise of all time, without a doubt, is Rocky. Yeah, okay. Uh, Better than not bad, thank you. Um, (laughs) One of the reasons Rocky is such a great movie franchise, one of the reasons it's so inspiring is if you've ever watched a Rocky movie, you know that in every fight he gets the mess beat out of him for 15 rounds. Um, I actually looked at a fight analysis this past week where someone went and watched the Rocky fights to see how many punches he took when he fought Ivan Drago in Rocky four, which is the best of all the Rockies. Don't confuse it with Rocky five, by the way, which was awful, but Rocky four, he actually uh, got hit in the face 68 times by Ivan Drago in just the first round. And so anyways, Rocky gets the mess beat out of him for 15 rounds. And yet what's so inspiring about the Rocky story is despite the fact that he gets hit over and over and over and over Despite the beating that he takes, he continues to persevere. He pushes forward, and as a result, he comes out victorious. Now, why do I share that? Because I really think the sermon today is going to feel a little bit like a rocky fight. Um, It's going to be a hard-hitting message. Um, It's going to be a message that Jesus uh, gives to us. It's going to feel a little bit heavy-handed. Um, it is going to be a message that I think, rather than giving you warm and fuzzies, is actually going to push you and confront you. And because of that, there are times in this sermon um, I'm not going to be sharing that quote, by the way. So, but um, you can read that if you want; it's a good one. Um, there might be times in this sermon that you find yourself, as a result of this hard hitting message, getting angry with me. And I just want to say, if that is you. Um, First off, just I would encourage you to give me some grace and ask yourself, if you start getting mad, like, how would I preach this message if I was Jared? Um, that would be a good exercise for you. And then secondly, I just want to remind you that I am only the messenger, uh, that my goal is to just love you the best I can by preaching this Bible, even the hard parts of it that we would rather not deal with, even if it means that by doing so, uh, I become less popular. And what I want to say is this. If you're in the room today, you're watching online, and you would not identify as a Christian, if you are not a follower of Jesus, let me be very, very clear. Jesus is not writing this letter to you. Okay, So you're kind of off the hook around this message particularly. He's writing to the church, to people who would identify as Christians. Secondly, I want to say this. If you are here and you are fighting your sin, if you are really, truly struggling and you're trying to grow in Christ's likeness, Jesus is not talking to you in this letter. Who he's talking to today is the person who, rather than fighting their sin, is flirting with sin. He's talking to the person who has become apathetic, who has begun to think that sin is really not that big of a deal. If that's where you are, Jesus wants to have a word with you today. And as we're going to see, it's not a very easy word. With that, look with me in chapter 2, verse 18. And by the way, the notes for the sermon is on the U Version Bible app if that interests you. But Jesus says, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, let me stop right there and just say this, unlike all the other cities that Jesus is writing to, the church of Thyatira is not an impressive city. It's actually a very small, blue-collar type city. It would be much more like Paragul than the rest of the cities. But what has been uh, interesting to me, just to think about this week, is that despite the fact this is one of the smallest churches in the smallest cities, it receives the longest letter from Jesus. So it actually gets the most attention, even more so than all the big, impressive cities. He says, uh, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, these are the words of the Son of God. If you remember every week, Jesus, when he's writing to the church, he gives himself a specific title that speaks to the specific need of that church. And so um, because in the city of Thyatira, people worship the God Apollo, um, they even had a coin that had his uh, a face on it, um, and it said on there, the Son of God, because they believe Apollo was the one true Son of God. Jesus says, no, let me start right out by telling you, I'm the one true God. I'm the son of God. I am the creator of the universe. And then he says, whose eyes, verse 18, are like blazing fire. Now, if we can be honest, this is a pretty intimidating picture. This is probably not a picture of Jesus you had in Sunday school, right? Whenever your teacher got the felt board out and they put Jesus on the felt board, more than likely, Jesus had, you know, a white robe with a blue beauty sash. Y'all remember that? He had like the feather blonde hair. He was more Swedish than Jewish. Um More than likely, you did not have an image of Jesus' Sunday school with flames in his eyes. It's a pretty terrifying image, but it's also a comforting image. Because what Jesus is saying when he says, my eyes are like blazing fire, is it's terrifying because one, he says, my eyes, what he's saying is they, they pierce the darkness. He's saying, my eyes are like a a searchlight. They expose the hidden corners of your life. This is why in verse 23, he goes on and he says, I'm the one who searches the mind and the hearts. In other words, Jesus is saying, I know every motive behind every action, even those that are done behind closed doors. This is a terrifying image, but it's also a comforting one because not only does fire penetrate the darkness, it also cleanses impurities. It refines, which means that when Jesus shines the light, his light into the darkness of your own life, he doesn't do so to harm you, but to help you, to heal you, to refine you, to make you more like Jesus and therefore the best version of yourself. And so Jesus says, I have eyes blazing like fire. Next, it says, my feet are like burnished bronze. So my feet, he's saying, are so strong, they're so durable, they can tread upon all evil until it's trampled into nothingness. And so right out of the gate, what Jesus is very clear on is, one, I am the true son of God. Two, I am pure. And three, I am powerful. This is how he introduces himself to the church of Thyatira. And then he does what he does in all of his letters. He gives them a word of encouragement. And it's important that we hear the way Jesus encourages the church. It's important for us to hear what he likes about the church. Because what he liked about Thyatira, he would also like about us. Here's what he says. This is um, verse 19. I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and your perseverance, that you are now doing more than you even did at first. So Jesus says, this is a church that has a lot going for it. He says, unlike the church in Ephesus, uh, Ephesus, which we studied the first week, he says that you actually are known for love. You genuinely care for each other. He says, this is also a church that's faithful. You're loyal. Uh, you're a people who are actually serving and meeting the practical needs. Like the pastors ha- aren't having to always come and be like, please serve, please serve, please serve. Like you're you're pitching in, like you're you're pulling your weight. This is a church that is persevering even in the midst of great persecution where people are being killed for their faith. He says, you're staying the course. And then I love this. He says, not only that, but you're actually doing more now than you even did when you got started. Whenever we decided to plant a church 10 years ago, one of the books that I read in residency was called Outgrowing the Ingrown Church. And the premise was this. The older a church gets, the more inward focus it gets. When a church is, is planted, when it started from scratch, And you guys know this, if you were like one of the six or even like one of the 15 or the 20 who was here in the early days, there was a ton of energy and a ton of passion. Like it's all hands on deck. You're excited. You're going to change the world. We're going to do things different than anybody else. I mean, there's just all of this. What happens is is, is, uh, the, the longer you go, the more established you get. And the more established you get, the more you begin to attract people who are here just primarily to consume an already made product. And so there's programs, there's resources. And so rather than being outward focused, we we become inward focused. And when we become inward focused, when we become ingrown, we become infected. And this is how a church slowly but surely dies a boring death. But Jesus says, look, this is not happening in Thyatira. You guys aren't becoming inward focused. He says, you're actually doing more now than you were in the beginning. You have more energy to do good works now. You're moving forward. You're living on mission. You're growing. But as we're about to see, not all growth is good growth. It's possible to be a church that is growing, and yet you're not healthy. Look what he says next in verse 20. He starts by saying, here's all the things I love about you. Nevertheless, verse 20, I have this against you. And what does he have against him? That you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Now, every scholar that I read agrees that it is very unlikely that this woman's name was actually Jezebel. And that is because to name your daughter Jezebel during the first century would be like one of us naming our kids Adolf Hitler. You just typically don't tend to name your kids after the most evil people in the world. Jezebel at this point was known as one of the most evil people to have ever lived. She was actually a queen in the Old Testament. And she was the husband of the the weakest and wimpiest king in Israel's history, King Ahab. Ahab. Um, She was the power behind the throne, so she exerted a tremendous amount of influence over her husband and over Israel. As a result, she actually led Israel away from worshiping the one true God to worshiping Baal. During her lifespan, we know that she raised up 850 prophets who would spread her ideas and ways. If any prophet of God would stand against her, she would have them executed. On top of that, because she had led the nation of Israel into sexual morality, there was a lot of unwanted pregnancies. And so what she would say is, hey, no big deal. If you don't want your baby, just sacrifice it to Baal. So it's a win-win situation. So this is an incredibly wicked woman. And what I want you to realize is that when you read her story, the way that she led Israel into destruction was through compromise. It was through telling the nation of Israel, convincing them that you can worship Yahweh and you can worship Baal. That you can worship the God of the Bible. You can give your allegiance to him and you can give your allegiance to another God. And I think in many ways, this is very similar to the message that is preached in America. That you can give your life to Jesus and you can basically live like everybody else around you. That you can worship God, but you can also worship sex or power or success. That you can look to any other thing other than him to find true fulfillment and happiness. And though this might sound good, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer once pointed out, the human heart has the capacity for only one, all-encompassing, all-embracing allegiance. You say, well, where would he get an idea like that from? Well, from Jesus himself. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, and I quote, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. See, this is not what Jezebel is teaching. She's actually in the church. She's an incredible amount of influence, and she's teaching what we would call a Jesus plus theology, that you can worship Jesus and you can worship this other thing. You can have Jesus and you can have what the world tells you to have. So this woman has a divided heart. As a result, she's creating division in the hearts of others. She's convincing them they can have two masters, that you can have a relationship with God and basically live however you want. And because Jesus, again, sees all things, he looks on this with eyes of blazing fire. And here's what he says to the church. Verse 20, I have this against you, that you are tolerating this woman, Jezebel. What's so hard about this word to me is that Jesus doesn't just say, I have something against Jezebel. He says, I have something against you because you know what she's doing and you're not doing anything about it. And I don't know why this is. I, I don't know if, you know, maybe they're, they're, they're busy. Like many of us, we get overwhelmed with our schedules and we're just like, I, I see that person in the sin, but I do not have the space to get involved in something like that. I don't know if that's the deal. I don't know if maybe Jezebel is just like a really like unhealthy eight on the Enneagram, You know, and it's like, if I go to that chick, like, she's going to bite my head off. You know, like, she's maybe just really scary and intimidating and defensive. I don't know if maybe they think it's the pastor's place. You know, some churches believe that, like, hey, like, it's not really our job to do ministry. Like, that's what we pay the pastors for. So, like, we can just sit back and not really worry about it. Or or maybe that they just don't care. Like, maybe it's just like, I don't think it's a big deal. Like, it's a big deal. It's a little bit of sexual immorality. Okay. Like, it's going to be all right. I don't know what the reason is. But the church in Thyatira will not address this woman's sin. They let her continue down a path of destruction. Rather than lovingly confronting Jezebel, they tolerate Jezebel. And Jesus says, I actually have this against you as the church. And as I thought about that this past week, I thought, you know, one of the hard things about being a Christian in America is that tolerance is actually a virtue in our culture. Have you ever thought about that? Like like the one thing we don't tolerate in America is intolerance. Because we have made self the ultimate authority, um, because my feelings rule today, because um, uh, truth has become subjective, um, I, I think that many of us live with this self-entitlement where we basically tell people, "Either you agree with me or you keep your mouth shut." And as a follower of Jesus, like that creates a lot of tension for us. Because on the one hand, we worship a holy God who clearly, if you read the Bible, doesn't tolerate sin. But on the other hand, we're told that it's unloving to actually disagree with somebody. We're told it's unloving to to ever point out anything that seems to be negative in their life. And listen, if that is where you are, if, if today you find yourself like me, living with this tension of like, do I tolerate sin? Do I not tolerate sin? Do I say something? Do I not say something? Then what's been helpful for me this past week is to realize, and I'll put this on the screen for you, there is a big difference between acceptance and approval. In other words, there's a big difference between accepting someone and actually agreeing with their lifestyle. And I think the best example we see of this is Jesus. If you go and you read the Gospels, Jesus accepted everyone. He had open arms for the last, the least, and the loss of society. Jesus loved sinners. He loved the hurting. He loved the broken. In fact, it's one of the reasons that the religious leaders of the day hated Jesus in Matthew chapter 9, they're talking to Jesus' disciples, and they're like, We're so disgusted by your rabbi because, quote, he eats with sinners and tax collectors. He actually went into their houses and had meals around their table. So Jesus clearly loves sinful people. He accepted sinners, but he never once agreed with their sin. And I think one of the greatest examples of this is the woman who was caught in adultery in John chapter 8. You remember the story. Her husband's off at work, her kids are at school. And, and she, you know, out, out of this kind of desire to feel alive, she runs to his house to connect with this man sexually, who if even for a moment can, can just fuel this passion and make her feel seen and loved and cared for. And in this moment while she's there in this act with this man who is not her husband, her pastor walks into the house, grabs her by the hair, and pulls her through the town and throws her down at the town hall. And I don't know how her pastor found her, but that's what happens. He throws her down, and then he says, Moses says to stone her. Are you going to disagree with Moses? He's talking to Jesus, this renegade rabbi who had just shown up that day to teach at the temple, and now before him is this woman in nothing but a sheet, her face pressed against the dirt and the ground where she's been thrown. This carefree, thr- carefree thrill from just a few moments ago has now suddenly been replaced with this blanket of public shame. And so here Jesus is, and and here's this woman, and she lays there exposed, and she's dirty, and she's afraid, and then she hears these words from Jesus. You who have no sin, cast the first stone. And then she hears rocks hitting the ground, not because they're throwing the rocks at her, but because they're dropping them. And in this credible act of mercy. Jesus, by the way, could have stoned this woman because he was without sin. He could have said, all right, so they're all a bunch of sinners. They can't do anything to you, but now I'm going to. But he doesn't do that. Here's this perfect, sinless man. He stands her up to her feet. And with all of her accusers gone, she looks at Jesus right in the eyes. And now she sees a man who has loved her more than any other man has ever loved her. And he speaks those words where he says, I do not condemn you. And we love that. We love that line. But we forget in the very next words that come from his mouth. He says in John chapter 8, verse 11, Neither do I condemn you now. Go and sin no more more. Go and leave your life of sin. Stop looking to these men who will never be able to do for you what only I can do. So in this moment, Jesus accepts this woman. And by the way, let this encourage you, he accepts her when she's at her lowest point. Some of you this morning, maybe you feel like you're at your lowest point, the darkest point in your life, and you need to know that Jesus will meet you there with love in his eyes. Jesus says, I, I do not condemn you. He accepts this woman at her lowest point, but he never agrees with her lifestyle. He says, I do not condemn you for what you have done, but do not do it again. Go and leave your life of sin. And essentially, this is what Jesus says to Jezebel. In verse 21, if you look with me, Revelation two twenty-one, he says, I have given her time to repent. And by the way, notice that, that Jesus doesn't just like, you know, had this hair trigger temper. He's like this moral police that as soon as he sees you screw up, he's like, bam, gotcha. Prepare to die. Well, like he says, I've given her time to repent. Now we don't know how much time it is, but he has gone to Jezebel over and over and over and said, please turn from this. Please don't go out on this path. Please don't do this to yourself and do this to others. But for whatever reason, Jezebel does not want to be forgiven. She does not want to give her life to Jesus as the Lord of her life, as I've given her time to repent of her sexual immorality, but she is unwilling. So verse 22, look at this. I'm going to cast her on a bed of suffering, and I'm going to make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways, and I'm going to strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the heart and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Well, this is a part of the Bible that many of us wish that we could just cut out and pretend like we have never read it. On the surface level, doesn't it seem like Jesus is being a little bit harsh? It does to me. But if you dive a little bit deeper, what you will see is actually behind this is a passionate, fierce, resilient love that Jesus has for his church. You see, in Revelation 21, Jesus actually goes on to refer to his church as his bride. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says that because Jesus loves his bride so much that he is committed to freeing her from the slavery of sin and helping us become the best and most beautiful version of ourselves that we can be. And so what Paul says that mean is, quote, Jesus's agenda for your life is to help you become, this is in Ephesians 5, spotless and without blemish, holy, blameless, and radiant. That is Jesus' vision for his bride, for the church. And because that is true, please hear me, Jesus is passionately opposed to anything that will get in the way of your freedom and your flourishing. And so when sin begins to spread to the body of his bride like a cancer, out of great love for the church, rather than letting her just all die, he steps in He has an intervention, and he does so by cutting out Jezebel and any other cancerous cell that threatens the life of his bride that he cares so deeply for. So after pleading with Jezebel to repent, right, rather than turning this blind eye, rather than giving this little wink-wink, like, ah, girls be girls, right, or like sweeping this under the rug, because Jesus is not an indifferent husband who's flippant, because he actually cares about his bride so much that he gave his life for her, Because he knows that sin leads to death and destruction. He says, I'm going to take out Jezebel and her followers and her children. And I think this should be a warning to those of us who are parents. Because there are two things in here that I think we learn from this little verse right here that we wish we could cut out. And one of them is just this. The reality is, as parents, our sins have consequences on our children's future. The sins that we commit today can, in fact, impact our children in a negative way in the days and years to come. And there are many examples that we could give of this. I think some of the most low-lying fruit is divorce. And I just bring that up because it's so popular in our culture. And I don't want to shame those of you who have been the product of divorce or you've gone through divorce. But we just need to realize, like, Despite what our culture says, like the, that the divorce is just a danger-free zone for kids, even therapists, like not even Christian therapists, but Christian and non-Christian therapists lock will tell you like that's just not the case, that's a sham. Like divorce actually creates grief and trust issues and insecurity and anxiety and a fear of commitment in the heart of a child they'll have to wrestle with for the rest of their life if not for the grace of God. And why is that? Because parents' sin have consequences on their children's future. We need to hear this today. Like, this is a hard word, but please hear me. Like, God is forgiving, but sin is not. Like, guys, sin is merciless. Sin it is cruel, it's unforgiving, and it has consequences that can wreak havoc on generations. And if that's not bad enough, what I think this passage also shows us today is not only are the consequences of our sins passed down to our kids. But our actual sins can be passed down to our kids. Meaning that that our sin, just like our DNA, like the color of our eyes, or our physique, or our personality, can in fact be passed down from one generation to the next. And so one generation sin can become the next generation sin and can become the next generation sin. And you're like, well, where do you see that at in the Bible, Jared? Well, I mean, there's a lot of examples, but just think about the story of Abraham. You guys remember the story of Abraham, I mean, who, who committed the sin of lying and favoritism and had a dysfunctional marriage, and as a result, what happens? He passes that sin down to his son, Isaac, who then passes it down to his son, Jacob, who then passes it down to his sons. And we don't just see this in the Bible. I mean, we see this in our culture. I think about Don Crinton, who's a member of our church. He used to oversee Green County Jail, and I once asked him, like, how many people here are repeat offenders? And he's like, oh, about 80% of them continue to return. He says, a lot of times, it's generational. He said, like, there's times where I've had three generations of people, family members, in the jail at the same time. Grandpa, dad, and son. Why? Because our sins can, in fact, be passed down to our kids. And I believe this is actually what we see happening in Thyatira. I believe that because of Jezebel's sins, they are being passed down to her children. And I I would assume her children probably at one time said something like, we'll never become like our mom. Which usually ends up meaning you're going to become like your mom. And they just begin to embody and take on the exact same practices as Jezebel had taken on. And as a result, out of love, out of a way of protecting his bride, Jesus says, I'm going to take them all out before this thing gets out of control. Uh, Eugene Peterson, uh, Ashlyn Holland, you can thank her for sending this to me if you like this quote. He says it like this in his message paraphrase of Revelation 3, 20 through 23. Why do you let that Jezebel who calls herself a prophet mislead my dear servants into cross-denying, self-indulging religion? I gave her a chance to change her ways, but she does not want to. I'm about to lay her low along with her partners as they play their sex and religion games, the bastard offspring of their idol I'll kill. Then every church will know that appearances do not impress me. I x-ray every motive and make sure that you get what's coming. Well... Thanks for coming, everybody. Hope you've been as encouraged by this as I have today. Let's pray. Just kidding. Um, It's going to get a little bit worse first, and then we'll pray. What do you do with a passage like this? We pretend it's not there. What do we do? Well, I think if we're going to be obedient, there's two responses today. And the first one is this. If we're going to take Jesus' word seriously, we need to draw a line in the sand. And we need to choose to live a life of no compromise. We need to err, if anything, on the side of holiness. To go from flirting with sin to fighting sin. And I think the way that you do that first is by honestly assessing your own heart this morning and saying, Jesus, is there any area where I've been tolerating sin? Is there anything that I'm currently doing that I know you've said to stop doing? Or is there something that I'm not doing that you've clearly told me to start doing? I don't know what it may be. Maybe for some of you it's around this area of sexual morality. It's having sex outside of marriage with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It's maybe pornography. Maybe it's watching movies with nudity in it. If you're anything like me, like I I can't do that because even even that can do something funky to me and put my mind in places it don't need to be. For others, maybe it's coarse humor. That's what she said, right? Like it, it, It's jokes that are like ha-ha funny, but you would never say them around Jesus because you know you're laughing about something that he hates, something that he says actually kills people. Um, for others, maybe it's materialism. You know, I don't know why this may be. Maybe because of the inflation or whatever, you're like... Okay, like I've got to cut something out of my life. And so the first place you go to cut things out is is generosity. It's like rather than tithing to the church or giving to the church or giving to the poor or whatever it may be, it's like I'm going to cut that out so that I can actually keep the things that I really believe I need to be happy. I don't know what it might be for you, but the call from Jesus is to take your sins seriously, to live a life of no compromise. And please hear me. If you want to live a life of no compromise, and I've thought about this this past week, if we're going to live a life of no compromise, we're just going to have to come to terms with the fact that we might not be able to have everything we want to have here. Like, if you choose to live a life of no compromise, like, there's a chance you might not be able to have a truck as nice as you want to have. You might not be able to have a house as big as you want. Like, if you choose to live a life of no compromise, like you might not be able to advance in your career as far as you want to go. You might not be able to have all of the things that the person next to you has. And that is because to live a life of no compromise is to live a cross-centered life. It is to it is say no to some of the things that the world says yes to, to die to our flesh so that in the end we can experience a deeper and more abundant life in Christ. As I was working on this message, I couldn't help but think about a biography that I read years ago about Keith Green How many of you have heard of Keith Green? Anybody? Awesome. Yeah, man. Um, Listen to some Keith Green today. He was a hippie kind of singer songwriter who had a massive impact, uh, not just on the music industry, but on the church and still does have a massive impact on the church today. And here's what's incredible to me. Um, He he actually died, by the way, at the height of his career due to a plane crash. And uh, his wife, Melody Green, decides to write a book about her husband. So that's sweet. Like, I want to tell my husband's story. And think about this, if anybody knows you today better than anybody else, it's your spouse. Would we all agree with that? Like, hopefully. Um, Like, we can all pretend and put on our happy faces and look all holy and all that when we're here on a Sunday morning. Like, we all have enough energy to do that. But like, you're going to let your guard down with your spouse. Like, they're going to see the best of you and the worst of you. So Melanie Green, knowing everything about her husband, she decides, I'm going to write a book about him and I'm going to give the book a title that sums up his life. And you know what she titled the book? No compromise. How awesome is that? That the woman who slept beside him, who saw him behind closed doors, even when he was at his worst, said, Do you want to know what sums up my husband? He was a man who drew a line in the sand and said, Even if everybody else is doing it, if Jesus said no, then I say no. Like that's what sums up my husband. He's a man who pursued holiness. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, isn't it true that the people that we remember and we read about are not the people who go with the flow? but it's the people who, like Steve Green, choose a life of no compromise. And so I just want to ask you this morning, is there any area of compromise in your own life? Is there any sin that you maybe even right now are being convicted by that you've refused to repent of? And if so, listen, I I want to say this with love in my heart. If that's where you are, it is not going to end well for you. Like you're not so special that the spiritual laws of the universe are going to make an exception for you. I think back to that line in verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she didn't want to. How much time? We don't know. And that's what's so scary. Jesus will give you time to repent. Maybe he's even been giving you time to repent, but you continue to flirt with these same sins. Continue to compromise, and eventually Jesus is going to say, according to the word of God, enough is enough. It's over. No more time. And so if there's a sin in your life that you've been flirting with, that you've been convicted by, like, don't be like, well, I'm going to deal with that next week. I'm going to deal with that tomorrow. No, deal with it today. Deal with it while you still have time. History is littered with people who have shipwrecked their faith, broken their hearts, and destroyed their lives because they did not take the little sin seriously. So if we are going to take Jesus' words to heart, we have to choose to live a life of no compromise. And then lastly, what I would say is we have to choose to walk through our own fears for the purpose of confronting one another. In James chapter 5, James says, my brothers and sisters, so again, he's talking to the church. Remember, if you're not someone who identifies as a Christian, this is not a word to you today. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wonder from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from what? Death and cover a multitude of sins. I've shared this before, but I can't ever read that verse without thinking about my brother. I was here in the first service today, and I remember whenever I was in ninth grade, and and, and um, I don't know, it was probably six thirty a.m. on a Thursday morning, a Friday morning, hadn't even woken up yet for school, but I'm awoke. I, I, I wake up because my mom is screaming. She's hollering. She's crying. She comes into my room, and she's like, "Grant's dead. He's dead. He's dead." and I run into the bathroom where he had uh, been taking a bath, and, and we didn't know he had seizures. I think this was maybe the first or second time he'd had one, and, and he had a seizure, and he went into water, and took all this water in, and he was unresponsive. And at that moment, I didn't look and be like, well, you're the mom. You do something about it. You're the leader of the household. Or I didn't look and be like, ah, oh, this is kind of awkward. I mean, he's naked. I mean, it's like, I, you know, it's like I'm a germaphobe too. It's like, or like, man, I, you know, mom, I'm kind of busy right now. Like, you woke me up from my sleep. Like, I've got other things to do. I need to get ready. Like, no, in that moment, I did what any of you would have done. Like, I began CPR. And I didn't know CPR. I didn't even know it that well. But I'm sitting there, like, chest compressions, like, breathing into his mouth, compressions, breathing into his mouth, slapping him on the face. I'm yelling at him. I'm crying. Like, don't die. Don't die. Grant, like, wake up. Wake up. And eventually, he, he wakes up. He takes a breath, he throws up the water that he had taken in, and and again, he's alive and doing well today. And when I look at that, and I think about it in light of James chapter 5, what I believe James is saying is that should be the same level of seriousness that we should pursue someone who's drowning in sin. That rather than making excuses with love on our heart, we should go to that person and help them turn from sin so that we can ultimately, he says, save them from death. And on a practical level, if you're like, how do we do this? Like, how do we go from tolerating sin to actually lovingly confronting those we see in sin? Well, I would say three things very quickly is one, definitely make sure that you remove the plank from your own eye before you point out the speck in your brother's eye or your sister's eye. And that doesn't mean you have to be perfect. Some people think, well, who am I to ever say, I got sin in my own life. That is not what that verse means. It just means you should care more about your own sin than you do the sins of others. You should be more broken about your sin than you are broken about the sins of others. And so just make sure that you're dealing with your sin first before you go to someone else. Secondly, I would just always encourage you to pray. Just check your heart. Take a moment. Like, why do I even want to go to this person? Is it because they've inconvenienced me? Is it because I, I, like I just they're, they're getting in my way? Is it because like, I want to prove something to them or I want to seek revenge? Like, just check your own heart. Stop and pray and ask God as I go to them to, to give me the courage and the love and the humility to address this in an appropriate way. And how do we address it in an appropriate way? Well, we follow Jesus' steps in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. We don't have time to read this, but just take my word for it. You can go read it later. Jesus says this, again, talking to the church. If your brother or sister is in sin, what is the first thing that you do? He says, You go to them. So please hear me. You don't text them. You don't message them on Facebook. You go to them so they can see your face. They can hear the tone in your voice. You go to them and you just have this conversation, not like this, but like this, where you just say, Brother or sister, like I know the person you want to be but you're not walking in step with that reality. You're not walking in step with the truth of who God made you to be. And I'm worried about you that if you continue down this path, it's gonna lead you down a path of destruction. And is that gonna be awkward? Yes. If that, by the way, if you like that, you shouldn't be doing anything I'm about to say, okay? Some of you maybe like conflict a little too much. And we would just ask you to take a back seat for a little bit for a while, okay? I'm talking to people who, who struggle with it. So you would go, and you would call them to repentance. If they repent, awesome. If they turn back to Jesus, that's the goal. But if they don't, Jesus says, next step, next level, you take someone else with you. Someone who's close to them, not some random stranger. And then they begin to have the conversation. Man, please turn from this. If they still refuse to repent, he says, at this point, you tell it to the church. And what does that mean? Because that's been screwed up over the years. Some of you even come from churches where they have taught you what that means. is basically like a pastor gets up and it's like, okay, everybody, good to see everyone. Just want to let you know we've kicked Nancy out of the church. She refused to repent, so I just want to let you know. Also, we have these baby bottles that are out in the foyer. And so, like, that's what, literally, some of you have grown up in that. I'm not trying to make light of it, but but that's the case. You think, like, we just broadcast that to the church. That's not what Jesus means. When he says tell it to the church, he means tell it to people who are most being the church to that person. Involve the pastor, sure. But bring in the missional community. Bring in the people who are closest to them to say, this is a very serious deal. We love you so much. We want to call you to turn from these lies, to turn and trusting in Jesus. And love truly is the motivation behind this, by the way. Like the, the motivation, again, is not just to like get back at somebody or make your life more convenient. It's to love them. I, I was reading this morning, I opened up my Bible app just to see what the verse of the day is, and it was Romans twelve ten that says, Be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves. I read that like, that's a great verse. I wonder what the context is. So I go to Romans twelve. The verse right before that says this Love must be sincere, hate what is evil. That's a weird combination of things. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. And then he says, cling to what is good. What is Paul getting at? He's getting at the fact that despite what the culture tells you, if we love God and we love one another, we must hate sin. We must be horrified by what evil can do in and through someone else, including ourselves. And therefore, rather than tolerating sin, we are to war against it and fight against it in our own lives first but also help others do the same. So this is not about revenge. It's not about making your life easier. The goal is to love a person by helping them walk in step with reality, become the man or the woman that God has made them to be, to help them experience the freedom and the flourishing that they are longing for. And that is where Jesus ends in verse 26. And this is where we'll end. He says this, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, not just praise a prayer at camp, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them into pieces like uh, pottery. Pottery. Pottery? Pottery. pottery. There we go. Luke, I'm blaming you. It's contagious up here. Will dash them into pieces like pottery just as I have received authority from my father. And then verse 28, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit of the church or what the spirit says to the churches. Here's what Jesus basically just says in short. To those who will willfully submit to my rule now, you will rule with me for all eternity over the nations. What an incredible vision. And then he says, I will give you the morning star, which is lost on us. But in ancient times, the morning star was the first star to appear at the darkest point in night. And though at first it was faint, it was barely detectable to the eye. It was always a reminder that morning is coming that the light is coming, that it's going to obliterate the darkness. And what Jesus is saying is that if you will continue to trust me, if you will choose a life of no compromise, if you will trust me, even if it means missing out on some things here and now, you will rule and you will reign in a place that is free from darkness, free from sorrow, free from pain, free from suffering, free from death, and you will experience everything that your heart has always longed for. And a lot of that, my goal this morning has just been simply this. Please hear me we're done. My goal, I promise you, has not been to shame you. It's not. It's not been to guilt you. It's not been to condemn you. It's not been to manipulate you. But I want to be honest. Like My goal this morning has been to hopefully create some healthy fear inside of you. And I want to say this, and and I think I'm saying this from a place of love. If you can listen to a message like this and not have a little bit of fear, you're probably the one who should be most afraid this morning. In Romans chapter 1, we see the wrath of God on full display. And what does the wrath of God look like in Romans 1? It's not hell, fire, and brimstone. It's eventually you run out of time. Jesus says, I've tried so hard to call you to repent, to stop flirting with this. And you refuse. And so in Romans 1, what does he do eventually? He says, You know what? You can have it. Take it. And what happens in that process is your heart becomes hard. You no longer sense conviction. You no longer hear the voice of God. The things that used to upset you no longer upset you, and you begin to maybe secretly, maybe publicly chase after this thing that in the end you thought would make you happy but only led to your destruction. That's the wrath of God. So should we be afraid this morning? I think so. And not like an unhealthy, toxic-like fear, but a fear that drives us into the arms of Jesus and what you will discover and here's the good news is that if you will run to Jesus no matter what sins you committed maybe even if it's even last night no matter what sins you've committed here's the good news of the gospel God's grace is sufficient for you God is rich in mercy and he is a big spender and so no matter what sins you have committed like you have time today to repent to turn back to Jesus and know that he's not going to shame you or condemn you but he's going to welcome you with open arms And this is one of the things that we remember when we take of communion every week. Guys, think about this. If you don't think your sin is a big deal, you need to remember what happened at the cross. Like your sin and my sin is such a big deal, it took the death of Jesus to fix it. Like God had to kill his own son to make this right. This is a big deal to God. And so I would encourage you, like when we come to communion today, don't be flipping about it. Like, come and, and, and let the Spirit convict you of every sin in your life that maybe you've committed. And then let that make the gospel even sweeter as you come forward. To remember, man, Jesus, thank you so much that you came and you lived a perfect life I could never live. And that you went and you died for me. You shed your blood for the forgiveness of my sins. Like, this is what communion reminds us of when we take the bread. It represents the body of Christ. And whenever it's dipped in the juice, remember the blood that was shed for us. And so today, if you're a Christian, we invite you to this. Even if you're not a member of our church, we also have a station in the back, these disposable cups you can take of those as well. But if you're here and not a Christian today, I want to encourage you with all the love that's in my heart and trust in Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. Turn from trusting in the things of this world to truly trust in him who alone can give you the salvation and the satisfaction, the freedom and the flourishing, the fulfillment that you are longing for. And if you want more information about what that looks like and next steps, I would love to connect with you. I'm up here in the front row. Adam's here, Chris is here, Robert's here. Any of our members, maybe someone you came with, we'd love to talk with you about next steps. With that in mind, let's stand together now as those who prepare communion come forward and as the band comes forward. And uh, I'll pray for us. And then we'll sing one final song. And just as you're ready, You can come forward if you want uh, to receive communion or to receive prayer, whatever best serves you. Father, I thank you so much for your word, even if it's a hard one. I thank you that you're a good parent who doesn't just want to be our buddy at the expense of not telling us the truth just so that we'll like you. I thank you that you're a responsible parent who's willing to have hard conversations with your kids out of love, out of concern. God, we just want to acknowledge this morning that, that you are not a killjoy, but you hate sin because sin will kill our joy. It'll rob us of the life that we are longing for. It promises so much, but it never delivers on that promise. God, I confess to you that there are so many times in my own life where I just feel like that I can follow you and have whatever I want and that... There's so many times that, honestly, Jesus' sin looks better than you. And I just confess that in my own heart. And I would imagine that I'm not alone this morning. And so I just ask that you would give us an extra measure of faith today. Grant us faith. Grant us repentance. And I pray that none of us will leave here under the weight of condemnation or guilt or shame. But that we would experience your grace and your mercy and your love in a fresh and profound way. And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen.